Pray there is something like her, something hovering above us, in whose palm everything spins. Pray the stars are all the feelings we refuse to love, and somehow they have forgiven us our refusal to address them by their animal names. That is Robin Cost Lewis with Glinda the Good from her inaugural collection, Voyage of the Sable Venus. Before we dive into today's episode, a bit more on why Robin wrote this piece, which is a tribute to Lena Horne and her role as Glinda in the 1978 film, The Wiz. I think it was the first time that I'd ever seen a black feminine deity in my whole life. Right, there, just scan, for the, for the listeners out there, scan your minds, think about it. You probably can't come up with more than one, <laughs> which is really, 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 really terribly tragic. In short, she was a deity for me. I'm Amy Monomira with Harvard Divinity School, and this is Divinity Dialogues, conversations on faith, purpose, and bearing witness. Today, we conclude our series of special edition interviews with this year's Gomes Distinguished Alumni Honorees, recognized in memory of the great Reverend Peter J. Gomes. From investigative journalism to intersectional poetry and Buddhist ministry to bioethics and medicine, this year's honorees bring the Divinity School vision, working in service of a just world at peace across religious and cultural divides to fruition. While today is our last alumni honoree interview for the year, Join us next week to learn more about our 2021 Gomes Distinguished Friend of the School, President Emerita Drew Gilpin-Faust. We will be airing excerpts from her poignant conversation with Dean Hempton from the award ceremony in May. And now, more from Robin Cost Lewis, who earned her Master of Theology degree in 1997. Born and raised in Compton, Robin is a Poet Laureate, a National Book Award winner, a Doctor of Creative Writing and Literature, Ellie's Woman of the Year, and an avid Sanskrit scholar. A production note, this interview took place in June 2021 in the midst of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Robin and I met over Zoom to avoid travel and practice good public health measures. Before we had even officially kicked off the interview, Robin opened with her palpable appreciation for the Sanskrit language. We were discussing the power of words and her frustration with the English language's limits with respect to form. Robin shared that while she was at the Divinity School, she wasn't even thinking about poetry. In short, her book was not yet a twinkle in her eye. It was like the dark side of the moon of Venus. Like, I, I'm just, I can't even tell you how far away. Thinking of myself as a poet, I would, I would never even have thought of it. It took years. I mean, if you want to talk about the seeds that were planted at the Div School for me as a writer, Sanskrit really was a magical engagement for me. First and foremost, it deconstructed English. Literally, like in my psyche, I could feel it. I mean, all I did was translate Sanskrit for two, three years. It, it really took English down to its studs for me. And then, and then I was free. I was really free. And I can't explain it to you because then I had to go into all this linguistic stuff <laughs> and, and, and nobody would understand and nobody would really be interested. But, you know, let me try just quickly. English follows the subject verb object formula, right? And a lot of writers play with that formula um, syntax, right? Mm-hmm. To make their writing interesting. Sanskrit does not follow the subject or object formula. Like 
many ancient languages, not many, but some. First of all, Sanskrit sentences aren't the same either. So you could put your object on the first page and your verb 20 pages later and the subject wherever you're like you could just play with it it just it just doesn't follow the same rules right and so it felt like in English I was on the earth and in Sanskrit I was in several galaxies at once and time too because of it doesn't follow that subject verb object formula time too then became more elastic which is telling because Sanskrit uh epic right? The whole notion of embodiment, transmigration, right? Just transmigration. It it makes it so much more fun, right? Because bodies shift, right? Whereas in the Judeo-Christian background, there's only one life. And in the Hindu pantheon, there are millions. And it it just exploded language for me. And I didn't know how much that would come into play as a writer, because I wasn't a writer then. But years later, when I started writing Voyage, I mean, the first movements in the title poem Voyage is an homage to my time at the dip school. It's an homage to Sanskrit. It was a gift. It was a true gift. I don't know many people who could connect subject verb agreement with the metaphysical. So thank you for going there. That, that's sure. amazing. amazing. But it is, it is connected because mm. it's about duration. It's about time and chronology. And that's what, I mean, you know, that's why I think Sanskrit is able to be the, the remarkable experience that it is, is because I think it's also reflecting the notion of, you know, Ayurvedic time, that time is elastic, it's not linear, you know, and now, now all these scientists know this, right? And Sanskrit says, this is just one little teeny, tiny, drooling, babbling toddler of a universe. And Not only that, but there have been hundreds of thousands more. So first of all, don't go around thinking of yourself so high and mighty because you're lint. You're not even lint. You're the lint on the lint on the lint. And second of all, don't buy this notion of history. Not at all. Right. And third of all, your body is also one of those roiling universes. And you'll come back again and again and again and again and again. And I think, I hope. It's in my new book, what I, which I'm working on now, it's that, that's, this is what the book is all about, right? Uh, about the history of the universe and Black people. <laughs> right, repositioning Blackness within a, a more um, expansive timeline. Thank Couldn't you. have got there without Sanskrit. Incredible. Thank you so yeah. much. Sure, my yeah. pleasure. And then just speaking of time and, and history, and you are welcome to take this in any dimension that you would like to, but um, we wanted to ask you, can you say a little bit more about your relationship with religion or spirituality and particularly the role it may have played before you joined the divinity school? So now you're going to make me cry. It's a very tender question because I'm not the same person I used to be and I very much miss that person. That's why I'm trying to figure out how to answer this well. All my life, I wanted to be a monk. All my life. And I knew I didn't have the right tradition. So I read. I think reading was a compensatory gesture towards an ascetic and an aesthetic life. Like those two things together. But I was always devout, but not to a particular deity or religion, but just devout without a need of an object 
And so my parents who, my father was Catholic, my mother's family used to be Catholic. They didn't go to church and I used to beg them to take me to church. And so I guess by the time I got around to applying to divinity school, I had already gone a few times to live monastically in India. And that was exquisite. I didn't want to come back. My teacher made me. I had to, she told me I had to finish college and I was so appalled. I was so disgusted. Being a monk comes very easily to me, very easily. And I think that was the problem, was that she and others of my teachers thought, but yes, but you can't do the world. And they were absolutely right. I didn't know how to be in the world. So when I came to the divinity school, it was for numerous reasons. One is it was a way I got to keep being a monk in my mind. And, and the div school let me be as weird as I wanted to be. But also I had fallen, I'd always been madly in love with literature. And once I learned that Sanskrit was the mother of all Indo-European languages, you know, all of all, so many people are think, you know, we romanticize Greek and Latin and that's fine. It's just not my, my thing. But Sanskrit used to be taught in the classics department. And I really think it's fear of a brown planet that it got kicked out. Uh, and so I was like, no, it's the second oldest language that we know how to teach each other. I want to do it. It's a Rostrian being the first. So I wanted to learn. So that's the beautiful part. It was like, I wanted to see, trace our history through language. Or as I told my mother, when I was a little girl, I want to learn every language on the planet. And she was like, I don't know, baby. And so Sanskrit was kind of like the shortcut. Well, if I can't learn every language, I can learn the more motherboards of every language. It was really, it was a really profound moment that I'm just, I'm, I'm still, it's still unfolding. Uh, the more that I let myself become a poet because, duh, Sanskrit is all poetry. <laughs> it's all poetry. Most of it, a great deal of it is written in verse. Thank you, Robin. Yeah. Oh, sure. So I want to come back to this what you said about you could just be as weird as you want here at the divinity school. Um, it's true. People are often surprised to find out that there, there just is, there's some really radical stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this isn't even radical, but another surprising fact is we have over 30, you know, I think 35 different religious traditions, denominations, you know, folks who are unaffiliated with a, you know, a, a faith tradition um, here represented at, at the Div School. So if you can lean into this uh, a bit more with us for a minute, you know, what, what's something else that might be surprising about the school or what would you like the world to know about HDS? I'm so happy you're asking this question. Uh, like every other student who comes to the Div School, it blew my mind when the day I arrived in the first week of orientation, because I felt like I had fallen into some radical, some tradition of radicalism. I thought I was going to be the oddball out, right? First of all, my class, my entering class or whatever, um, was like, I don't know, not 50% queer, but pretty much. I mean, there is a tradition of queer uh, engagement in theology. It makes sense since we've been murdered and burned and pillaged for so long because of religion. It makes sense that so many uh, different kinds of queer theologians would find themselves at the Div School um, interrogating the history of uh, queer persecution cross-culturally. But that blew my mind. Queer theology, heaven, of 
all traditions, of all traditions. I also didn't realize I would be engaged with so many feminist men, theologians. That blew my mind. I had so many men friends who were there to deconstruct their own tradition, most of whom were there to get ordained around feminist theology. I also didn't know there was a feminist <laughs> uh, a feminist scholar kind of community at HDS. I just didn't realize how radical the no. dip school was, but also the tenderness. Everybody was, their, their seeking was so true. I mean, there were a couple of careers there and literally I can name them on three fingers, but for the most part, I, every student, every classmate, I, they, everybody was sincere about their engagement. It's a school filled with like the most divine freaks imaginable like just angels, like seraphim. Thank you. As a poet laureate with a master's in theology, how do you <laughs> foster respect for pluralism in your everyday life? We talk about pluralism a lot at the school and wanted to hear from you. The woman at the well, okay? There's a woman at the well and not just in Christianity, but in lots and lots of different traditions. I think it's a story that traveled, migrated through religions over time. The notion of the stranger is always in, in theological traditions, the stranger is also always some kind of um, masked messiah, always, right? You never know who you're talking to, right? That idea that the stranger is most probably a God is very much an idea of how I was raised diasporically. Like you don't know who you're talking to. And it's also true politically, like, you know, in DC, which used to be a much more African-American city, you know, the guy on the bus stop was often, in overalls, was often a diplomat, right? You just never know who you're talking to. And therefore, <laughs> one would hope that it, you didn't need that kind of status to respect anyone. But that said, you know, the idea of a mask and a mask on top of a mask was really prevalent in my upbringing and in my studies at the Div School. Bodies were constantly shifting. A God, Krishna is always playing jokes on everybody, right? Everybody. Everybody's being taken by Krishna and other gods because men are like humankind is so arrogant and so stupid. So they have to keep playing jokes on us. And so the notion of a stranger, for me, the way I was raised and the way that I studied is that the stranger just might hold the key to your liberation. And it's usually the stranger that you find the most repulsive is, is somehow not the door that you need to walk through. That I, I learned that from my parents, of course, but also from studying at the Center for World Religion. I mean, there's so much pluralism, that doesn't do it justice. I don't even know, that word's too small. I don't know how to talk about it because I don't think the language has been invented yet. We're trying to get there and we will, I have complete faith, but I think our bodies, right? In terms of the Center for the Study of World Religion and HDS in general, our bodies were far ahead of the times. We were, and I know that now, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I ended up there accidentally. <laughs> Like I said, I would have preferred to have been in a monastery. I'm not sure. So I'm not trying to say, and I'm not trying to placate HDS because I tell you, by the time I graduated, I was so mad that I wasn't 
spinning in a Sufi circle in ecstasy and as opposed to just talking about spinning in a Sufi circle of ecstasy. It's just a very special thing when the ethic is love, when the ethic is love, no matter what. Right. And that does not mean that it's not love isn't violent. Love isn't all these other things annoying. Right. It, it doesn't, I'm not trying to say it was heaven. It wasn't. We had, we argued a lot. I'll just say one, say thing, one, say one thing for the record. There was a time, what class was that? Oh my God. Cornell West used to have the best, the best titled classes, evil and suffering. After class, we would move to a restaurant whose name I can't remember in the square. We would close it down to 1 a.m. Every week, once a week for the whole semester, talking about evil and suffering cross-culturally. Do you see what I mean? So pluralism, sure. But and I'm saying, and it was like 25 students. And we would just sit there talking, 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 trying to figure it out. And now some of those students are like, you know, some of the most amazing philosophers and politicians around today. They're doing incredible work in the world. So I don't know if pluralism might be not quite as complex a word for the depth of what was actually taking place when I was there. And I don't know how to, what to tell you the word might be because I truly don't think we know yet. It's that expansive. Yeah, yeah. So I will say though, I don't think it's a coincidence that all the people I just talked about were people of color or queers or feminists. Like everybody had some experience of suffering mm. and not at their own hand, right? The suffering was an external, had an external source and we were trying to figure it out. So we, we also wanted to ask you, uh, in addition to your award-winning writing career, mm -hmm. you are also an educator and a doctor of creative writing and literature and LA's woman of the year. And <laughs> you, you truly contain multitudes. And we wanted mm -hmm. to ask, how does your degree from HDS come to light in this intellectual and creative constellation? Well, I think the question that I just answered, I think I spoke about it in some ways, like, you know, the stranger is the greatest person you will ever encounter. My book tour wore me out. There were, there were some moments I was in four cities in one week. And that whole thing about waking up in a hotel and not knowing where you are, I thought that was a joke. It's not a joke. It's real and it's scary. And so I remember I had this one reading where I was so, I get evil when I'm exhausted. It took me too many decades to realize that I do. And I was evil. I was in a bad mood and I didn't want to do it. And then I remember going, Robin, the stranger is the greatest gift. The stranger is the greatest gift. And at that time, the book signing lines were like three hours, two hours long. So I would read for an hour, then I would go to a reception, then I would sign books. So it would be a five hour night of just persona and, and, and try not to be in a persona, right? Which is exhausting. Anyway, the book signing line, long line out the door, out the auditorium. And I was like, okay. So there's this great bhajan, jungla jungla pirdivana mita dara dara hoja, right? I am wandering through the jungle, right? Jungle, it's like, and you know, and everything is the beloved, everything. And so every person that came up to me to have their book signed, I thought, ah, there's a great, there's a great line from one Indian mystic. Oh, Shiva, look what you have become. 
right? Oh God, look what you well, look what how you have manifested today. So every person who came to get their book signed, I thought, oh Shiva, look at you. Look at you in the form of the student with his backpack and pink hair and a water bottle saying, crying because their parents don't understand them. Oh Shiva, look at you, right? And in between students, I would sing this bhaja, right? As people were coming up and they were getting their pages ready. So I was just sitting there rocking and singing and every single person, I was like, I'm gonna make this a practice. I have to turn this around because I'm, I'm burning out. And it was one of the best book signings I've ever had. I was so high by the end. I had so much energy. I was so happy, right? And I think that's how I deal with my students in the classroom, right? I try to see them all as that stranger I was talking about. A stranger is the gift. Or if I go to a high school or junior high school or elementary school, do you know how great it is to think about these kids as being all little manifestations, singular manifestations of the divine? Who's watching me to see if I have learned anything at all? and will treat them with the respect that they deserve as the singular manifestation of the divine for me that day, as opposed to me going, oh, look at these little kids, right? Which is fine, but oh, aren't they so cute? It's like, no, they're actually the divine. And so I think when I meet kids, when I meet older people, or when I'm representing the mayor's office or all of those things, I just really try to put into practice what I studied. Things go swimmingly well for the most part if I stay in that awareness. And I think people feel it. You know, I think we all know when we're being respected and I think we really know when we're being exalted. And I think it's a, you know, it's an ecstatic tradition to ex exalt all of creation. It's a strange thing to live that way, you know, because there's a lot of heartbreak. I expect the whole world to be in that place, right? I really do. That's the idealist in me. So I think I'll be, oh, what's the word? I can't remember the word. It's such a great word for it. Bewildered. I think I'll be bewildered all of my days. On that note, you have offered us a gift. And you've offered to share two poems from Voyage of the Sable Venus. And with that, I... I would love to turn it over to you to hear sure. your poems and your voice. A pause here to note that when we opened today's episode, Robin read Glinda the Good, and that she's about to close our show with Summer, two poems that live next to each other in her book. I think the only thing I'll say about these poems is that they are more obviously engaged in a spiritual, philosophical inquiry. There are displays of two different uh, uh, displays of devotion at two different ends of the pole. Um, I think that's something also I learned at the Diff School. My sister and I have conversations about this. She's Christian and very devout and I'm not. But it's really, really a great thing to be mad at God. It's, a, it's an act of devotion to be angry at God. And with, for her, she's, when she read this poem, she thought, you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> and I said, well, God burns me in hell for writing this poem. And it's not, it's, it's not. God's not what I think God is. Okay, summer. Last summer, two discreet young snakes left their skin on my small porch two mornings 
in a row. Being postmodern now, I pretended as if I did not see them, nor understand what I knew to be circling inside me. Instead, every hour I told my son to stop with his incessant back chat. I peeled a banana and cursed God, his arrogance, his gall, to still expect our devotion after creating love and mosquitoes. I showed my son the papery dead skins so he could know too what it feels like when someone shows up at your door twice telling you what you already know. Robin, thank you for all sure. your insights, for all of your deep, deep feelings and deep wisdom. We, we really can't thank you enough. I don't have deep wisdom, thank you, but I don't have deep wisdom. I just, am, I'm just mirroring what you guys are mirroring. You know, it, it, I don't think, I don't think there's anything, I, I don't believe in exceptionalism. I think everybody is exceptional. I just, I just think that we've decided to uh, close our eyes to our own beauty. Many thanks to Robin for her time, for her insight, and for wielding love as a force for truth. And thanks to you for tuning in to the special edition of Divinity Dialogues. This podcast came together with the help of some remarkable colleagues, including Caroline Cataldo with her editing and producing expertise, Kristen Pont with her exceptional work with the Gomes Award events, and folks across the communications and development teams at the school. Tune in next week to hear the warm and wonderful conversation between Dean Hempton and President Emerita Drew Gilpin-Faust from this year's Gomes Distinguished Friend of the School Award Ceremony. As always, you can find us on the HDS SoundCloud channel or subscribe to Harvard Divinity School on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you never miss a new episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about HDS and our amazing community. Until next time.